actors should have access to individuals' facial recognition biometric data? Should it be the government or the police for security reasons? Could this be extended to private companies under any circumstances? Data on past criminal activity is used to train algorithms to essentially identify patterns, either hot zones for crime or individuals of interest. With the increasing automation of the border, more and more decisions, decisions on which someone's life, health and security hinge, are being displaced from the human to the machine. Hello, I am Mariam Tanveer, the host of Season 6 of Declarations, the Human Rights Podcast, part of Cambridge's Centre for Governance and Human Rights. I would like to extend a warm welcome to all our regular listeners and also to our new ones. We have an extremely exciting season in store where we'll be discussing the intersections of human rights with new technologies and artificial intelligence. Along the way, we will grapple with how to keep up and navigate the totalizing new age of human rights and the ever-changing technology environment. In producing this show, we are going to attempt to move the needle, hopefully, to a more equal and fairer society. Today, I would like to introduce some of the episodes we have in store for you. And our panelists will be talking to the experts in the field about various topics relating to technology and human rights. Unfortunately, thanks to Omicron, the episode is on Zoom. Okay, so let's start with Nana. Nana, you're a PhD candidate in the Politics International Studies Department at the University of Cambridge, and you're interested in predictive policing. Could you briefly explain what this is for us? Yes, thank you, Marian. Um, I just wanted to start by saying that the idea of predictive policing or predicting crime is not new, in the sense that society and law enforcement have tried to prevent uh, criminal activities for centuries. So spawning youth programs to the eugenic idea of distinguishing facial features in criminals in the 19th century. But today, predictive policing entails leveraging techniques from statistics and machine learning to predict future criminal activity. Data on past criminal activity is used to train algorithms to essentially identify patterns either hot zones for crime or individuals of interest. So the goal of predictive policing is to prevent crime and better allocate police resources to areas of interest. And there is also a notion of fairness in the sense that technology might be more neutral and thereby overcome some of the heuristic bias of the individual police officer. And much of predictive policing software is developed in collaboration between police departments and academia. And an example is PredPol, which is a collaboration between the LAPD, uh, the Los Angeles Police Department and the UCLA. But there are also private companies tapping into this market, such as, for example, Palantir. And there are a number of human rights issues with predictive policing uh, as it functions today. The kind of data fed into the algorithm is not necessarily neutral, but reflects the past bias of recorded crime in any police registry. And thereby, predictive policing contributes to reproducing existing patterns and diverting the focus towards, for example, property crimes and overlooking, uh, for example, white-collar crimes. And this has led to over-policing and disproportionate targeting of vulnerable populations, which has serious human rights implications and has led to massive protests. An example is that in early November 2021, the LAPD was forced to discontinue its use of PredPol following public outcry. 
So in this episode of Declarations, we will be speaking to human rights experts and academics on the human rights implications of this emergent technology. What happens with the presumption of innocence in predictive policing? How can we ensure the right not to be arbitrarily detained or targeted? How do we ensure equality before the law? And is there a disruption of the temporal causality of events happening in predictive policing, making for new legal and human rights questions? Basically, how can we avoid crime before the fact? Thanks, Nana. Yasser. So Yasser is doing a world history MPhil at the University of Cambridge. Let's talk to Yasser. Are you producing an episode on the Rohingyas, biometric data and repressive regimes? Would you like to give a brief explanation? So the starting point of this is that uh, in June, the Human Rights Watch uh, had a report that the UNHCR, which is the refugee agency of the UN, improperly collected Rohingya data and shared it with Myanmar's government. And this has started a big debate about um, the way in which uh, Rohingya data has been collected, but also about how biometric data has been collected from refugees in general. Uh, The defence of this and what the UN has said is that it's a far more dignified way of registering refugees by taking their iris scans and their fingerprints. This is a much more secure and efficient way of doing the necessary task of uh, registering refugees. They use the idea of uh, potential fraud, that uh, refugees could be registered twice under different names and gain too many benefits. The idea that uh, there might be waste um, with unless uh, refugees are registered using biometric, and also concerns about national security that many donor countries have. The idea that you can catch terrorists posing as refugees um, if you use a more secure biometric registration system. Uh, there's an idea that people can be only properly registered and only registered once using biometrics. And this all ties in with ideas about efficiency and the professionalisation of the aid sector. Um, But these are really more concerns to do with donor countries rather than what the refugees want themselves. And it's very problematic from a human rights perspective. The questions of how secure uh, this data holding is Um, is really important and how um, possible it is for it to be hacked into from different uh, people. Also, who has the data and with whom it's shared is incredibly important. And also the themes of consent and power relations between the aid sector, between uh, the aid agencies and the refugees on the other hand. How much can a refugee really give informed consent to something that they don't really know where their data is going to be given? And I think there's a double standard on privacy here as well. Such a massive uh, data breach would gain a lot more publicity if it happened to Westerners rather than if it happened to uh, Rohingya refugees. And this we can see happening in lots of different places around the world, not just in Bangladesh and with the Rohingya. It's also happening in Afghanistan with the Taliban gaining a number of uh, sources of data with refugees, but also in Kenya and Somalia, Syria, Yemen as well as Bangladesh. So I'm really excited to discuss these ideas on the Declarations podcast. Thanks, Yasser. We also have an episode about games and human rights this year. Alex is a third-year undergrad in the Politics Department at the University of Cambridge. Could you possibly tell us a little bit about what we have in store? 
Hiya. Um, I'm going to be looking at the question of if video games, which simulate a first-person perspective in refugee camps, um, are an effective way of raising awareness about this experience and also, and also building empathy. Some of them use virtual reality and radically put the player in the shoes of the refugee. There are games like one named Bury Me My Love, where you are inserted straight into the phone of an anxious husband as he guides his wife Noor from Syria to Europe. Um, this takes place in kind of pseudo real time, so you have to wait for the messages from Noor um, and the delays, respond to real time information to help her and to get her safely to Europe. This game was actually modelled off of the published texts, um, which were tracked a woman doing the same journey. Um, some of the other games use VR to give the player a real first person perspective, and others let you play as an avatar, making life and death decisions throughout the camps. Um, so the basic idea of these games is to educate people about the migrant experience, the dangers faced, and the emotions felt. However, we're going to be asking how effective this really is at changing perceptions, and is it really a useful way of fostering a more understanding society? Um, it could be a fantastic education tool, but we have to ask whether or not this is trivialising the refugee experience, um, whether building empathy is something that is at all useful or whether it just reiterates the idea of having like a very individualistic um, solution to a more of a structural issue. And it's like we these games are caveated by the fact that you can just switch your phone off at any time and tap out of the danger, which is something that is not possible if you're a refugee, therefore meaning that they they don't actually simulate what it would be like to feel the emotions, therefore building empathy is quite difficult. Um, we have to also ask like, whether we're asking too much of these simple games, which are just launched at an audience with shrinking attention spans. Um, games are the largest form of media consumed at the moment, so they need to be really seriously considered for their potential benefits. Obviously, like so many of these other technological solutions to human rights issues, um, it's far more complicated than a, a black and white answer whether or not these are good. And they have to be critically understood. So I look forward to speaking to academics and game developers to try and get a better understanding of these games. Thanks, Alice. Staying on the theme of technology and refugee rights, Yasmin, a second year undergrad in the history department. So you are producing an episode entitled Fortress Europe. What does that mean exactly? Well, since the turn of the century and in a globalising world, migration has increasingly been cast as a security issue rather than a human or social issue, with borders themselves becoming geopolitical zones of conflict. So, Mariam, what some call Fortress Europe is a product of decades of investment into the securitisation and militarisation of Europe's borders, whose operations are reinforcing the construction of the safe quote-unquote, internal space of Europe and an unsafe external space, which is institutionalising a reactive suspicion to migrants and asylum seekers rather than a humanitarian responsibility. Migration is a phenomenon at the heart of the human story and it combines myriad emotional, mental, cultural and physical perspectives into a complex reality that a simple solution or process cannot fully understand. And so what this episode will ask is the relationship between such techno-solutionism and the prevalent discourses of violence and threats that surround migration into Europe. Are they entwined together? Do they cause each other? Or are they simply coincidental in a digitalizing world? What help or hindrance can the machine perspective bring to such a human issue? And indeed, we'll be looking at, hopefully, the legality or dubious nature of such technological development, including its potential challenge to Article 6, the right to a fair trial. 
we're actually currently seeing a case concerning the transparency of EU-funded trials into artificial intelligence. These are video lie detectors being used on migrants crossing into Greece, Latvia and Hungary that scan their faces as they respond to questions to see if they're lying. It's going through the European Court of Justice at the moment, and we anticipate a result within the next few days of recording. And so that's going to be something that will be really interesting to return to within this broader picture of of Fortress Europe. With the increasing automation of the border, more and more decisions, decisions on which someone's life, health and security hinge, are being displaced from the human to the machine. It's something I'm really excited to talk more about because it's such a prescient phenomenon and it really is one that has truly profound implications for all of us. Thanks, Yasmin. We also have an episode on facial recognition and its implications regarding human rights. Veronica, an EMPHIL student in Politics and International Studies, could you elaborate this one for us? Sure. So, live facial recognition has been a widely debated topic in the past years, both in the UK as well as internationally. And while several campaign organizations advocate against the use of this technology, based on Article 8 of the Human Rights Act, which aims to protect the right to private life, Um, Academic research on the topic takes a bit of a different approach. By looking at both the advantages and the disadvantages of this technology in various contexts, and focusing more on the public attitudes towards live facial recognition, academic research aims to answer the question of why do citizens across countries have different takes on how or whether this technology should be used? So, In short, the main question we will aim to unpack in our discussion is whether live facial recognition is the path to a surveillance state or whether it could be reconciled with human rights standards. Now, in order to explore this topic, we hope to bring a wide range of perspectives on the current use of live facial recognition by various institutions, both public and private. And also ask ourselves, which actors should have access to individuals' facial recognition biometric data? Should it be the government or the police for security reasons? Could this be extended to private companies under any circumstances? Also, we seek to find out how much of a say should the public have on the use of this technology and whether or not they are sufficiently informed about it at the moment. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, what should our aims be regarding live facial recognition in the future? Is there a way to deploy it in a human rights compliant manner or should it be abolished completely? After our discussion, we'll leave that for you to decide. Thanks, Veronica. Up next, we have Arshid, an LLM student at the law faculty, who will be talking to us about artificial intelligence and employment rights. What is this all about then? Thanks, Mariam, and hi, everyone. So I'm hoping to explore a frequently discussed and contested aspect of artificial intelligence, its relationship with employment and how it is already and could continue to cause mass redundancies in many fields. But I'm going to be looking at this relationship from a human rights perspective. Some American estimates say AI could displace a quarter of all jobs. And while it will create new jobs too, its overall effect is still unclear. What is certain is that there will be a great shift in the job landscape. So we'll be considering whether human rights might be fundamental in the future when reconciling the progress of AI with the protection of employment and careers and workers. This topic brings up a lot of interesting issues, the answers of which aren't really clear at all. One key issue is whether there is a human right to work in the first place and whether AI replacing jobs on potentially a very wide scale undermines this right or breaches it. Do current international human rights instruments cater to this situation? 
if there's not such a right, and it might be unclear if there is, should there be? So following on from that, even if we can say there is a relevant human right engaged, what can governments across the world be expected to do to uphold this right? How do they protect jobs? Can we halt the progress of AI to protect workers and certain careers? In a way, there's fundamentally a tension between balancing technological advances and the benefits they can definitely bring with its impact on certain groups in society. And that makes it a really difficult policy and legal area to navigate. Maybe human rights can help in other more subtle ways. There's a lot of questions we could unpack, and I'm hoping to explore some of them in this episode. But it's a really interesting and topical issue that society is already starting to confront. So we can see if we can get anywhere with this human rights perspective. Thanks, and I'm really looking forward to discussing with all of you. Thanks, Achit. Nima is a third-year Education Policy International Development student, and we have an episode on deep fakes. Nima, what are these exactly? Uh, that's a great question, Mariam. So what deep fakes are is if you think of any sort of video, you can basically swap out the face of the actor in that video. But the difference is if um, compared to, let's say, a normal Snapchat filter where you're able to, let's say, swap your face with your friends and you still have control of your own expressions, in deepfakes, it's the person manufacturing the video. So they will be able to control your facial expressions and what you do. And this often results in actions that you have not consented for. And this has become, deepfakes have gained a lot of popularity recently, especially during the 2020 elections. You would see, let's say, fake videos of Donald Trump saying outrageous things or Mark Zuckerberg saying some unsavory things. But what becomes extremely problematic is when we follow where the money goes, which isn't through politics, but actually leads us to the adult entertainment industry and particularly the porn industry. So what we've noticed is that our research shows that 90 to 95% of deep fake videos online are actually non-consensual porn. And 90% of that is actually non-consensual porn of women, which is absolutely horrifying. And in this episode, we are going to be exploring this topic, not just through an academic point of view, but also through the ground and see how can women exactly protect themselves, the exploitative nature of the industry and what is the current realities. This issue, I believe, is especially important Because in 2015, though the UK has made uh, revenge porn illegal, it does not encompass uh, aspects such, technological aspects such as deep fakes. And currently the UK Law Commission is reviewing the law with regards to this. So I think it's a very current topic that needs to be considered and talked about. Thanks, Nima. Last but not the least, we have my episode where we'll be looking at the internet shutdowns and how human rights activists continue their work in spite of all impediments. We will have Ms. Sulema Jahangir and Ms. Moniza Jahangir who will be talking about moving the needle in Pakistan, creating awareness about human rights and human rights violations. All these episodes sound so interesting and I for one cannot wait to hear them all. For today's podcast, your sound editor was Max Parnell. The show notes writer was Anthony Santa. The communication manager was Ella Recher. The executive producer was Tom Kissock. And the podcast lead was Andrea Fares. Thank you ever so much for listening. And we look forward to having you tune in for the first episode. I've been your host, Mariam Tanbir. Keep on moving the needle. <laughs>